0: 9, 12. <laughs> but
1: we can discuss that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up.
2: Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio... Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. I'm your host, Emily Brandwin, CIA spy girl on Twitter. And it's kind of exciting because I'm broadcasting from the East Coast today and I'm back in my hometown or quasi-hometown. And what's even more exciting is I am joined by an actual good friend, not just somebody I met on Twitter. I mean, I did meet him on Twitter, but now we're actual friends and it's very exciting and he's a very, very, very cool background which I will say a little bit about, and I'm not going to let him speak until I actually say his name, but you've seen him on MSNBC a lot. He's written for Newsweek, the New York Daily News, uh, a bunch of other things as well. There's another magazine which he can tell me about because I've just forgotten it. He's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and even more exciting is he wrote a killer book about his story, How to Catch a Russian Spy, because he was a double agent you know him you love him it's my friend navid jamali hey navid
0: hey emily i gotta tell you when they told me that i was going to be on a podcast with the fbi's top analyst on china i was so excited uh you know i love the fbi yeah. you know i've had my mixed reviews about the cia but oh the FBI, no cia sucks. it's terrible it's just Horrible. I mean, who'd ever want to work for them? I mean, it's just oh like the God. worst place. It's,
2: and they hire anybody. I mean, I
0: think I know, and I think just gave it a one-star. I think that's where it ended up. So, you know, I'm just saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, I heard the CIA even hired an improv comic once, which is fucking crazy.
0: Oh, God, wait a we'll let anyone in.
2: Anybody. The standards are so low. <laughs> well, I... Was- <laughs> As you can tell, we have some banter, because I've known Naveed for a few years now, and I was actually introduced to you through a mutual friend of ours, Catherine, and That's I, right. I remember she was like, can I introduce you to my friend Naveed? He's a double agent. I was like, what the hell is this guy? And then you messaged me on Twitter, like, hey, I'm a double agent. And literally, that was your intro to me.
1: <laughs> Surprise! You, had no,
2: you literally had no game whatsoever. You know that you literally like. No, I'm no. a double agent. I'm like, what the fuck? Who is this Joker?
0: What is that? Yeah, what is this? Wait, As I, you know, as a son of two immigrants, the joke is, of course, that when I told my parents I was a double agent, they're like, "What? You can't be a triple agent. Double is only good enough for you." That's just like the that's like the bare minimum. What do you not do the extra extra homework assignments too? Is this like what? <laughs> it's not how we raised you.
2: We raised <laughs> you to be a triple agent.
0: He quadruple. Look at look at look at Joe Shaman down the street. He, he's got like uh he's got at least five five of those things under himself. Well,
2: well what's been exciting though, Naveed for I just said your name like it's very official. What's been exciting, Naveed? What's been lovely for me is like I think we come into contact all the time with different folks on social media. Yeah. And you know, people kind of come in and leave your you know, leave your little orbit. And I love that it's extended on and I consider you a real friend. And we've talked about things that have nothing to do with espionage and and one of the reasons I, I think I really respect and really admire you is you're really your social activism, which I love to talk about later as well. And it's something that has really, I've always held you up on a high esteem because I know it's truly who you are and it's in your core and in your being. Uh, So I think it's important we talk about that later, but more importantly, you've got the best first date story ever. I know you're married, but if you weren't, I would say this is the best story ever for a first date and I want to tell—I want you to tell everybody a little bit about how it happened, how you became a double agent for
0: the FBI. Oh, goodness. You know, <clears throat> there is—I'm sure you know—you know—we joke about espionage, we joke about the intelligence community.
1: It is serious
0: business, but I think that just like with anything that is serious, you have to have a little bit of dark humor. It's just one of those things that carries you through. And for me, uh, humor is very much part of my DNA, and um, when I was first introduced to the, the man who would eventually become my, my Russian case officer, a man named Oleg Kulikov, um, you know, uh, when uh, a case officer, I'll give you the serious side question, a case officer is meeting mass at a source uh, for the first time, there's a level of trepidation on his or her part, and certainly, you know, they have to assess, and there's and very much is what the Russians did with me. For my part, I was a 28-year-old kid, and I mean really a kid, like the maturity, probably a 15-year-old boy in a lot of regards. So
2: same thing
0: as you are now. Yeah. No, right? I'm age maybe six months in terms of maturity. Okay, perfect. So I I met this man, and I could tell that he was uncomfortable. Um, We met in my parents' office, and there's a whole story of my parents and and the Russians and the FBI have been gone for decades at this point. uh, like, I hey, going to stop you
2: right. Hey, I want to stop you because I think it's important that you talk about your parents and why the Russians sure. were in your orbit in the beginning. And kind of right. go, go back to your origin story at first.
0: <laughs> okay. So, my parents are uh, they're both immigrants. My mother is French. My father is Pakistani. Uh, they moved to the United States in, in the late 60s and they sort of met in this improbable, you know, uh, sort of chance encounter in New York City and they ended up getting married. And, and, Building a family the American dream, and, and, and they also built a small business. And that small business eventually morphed into a defense contracting company. And it was located in Midtown, New York, uh, off of Columbus Circle. And because it was in New York, there, there just weren't that many defense contracting companies in the, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and in 1989, uh, they had an office on uh, mid floor of a standard apartment filled office building in, in, in Midtown. And a man walked in and essentially said that he wanted to procure some information. That's what the company did. They supplied books and, and reports and, and the like. And he wanted to buy some books. And he showed my dad a list of books. Pa- can I
2: just pause you? So when you say defense contractor, it, it was how I read it and I could have read it wrong. Your family had like a bookstore, but they had – was it open source information that they were able to gather? Because they weren't working in a skiff, which –
0: Right. It, if, and you can yeah, explain skimp so, as well, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so yeah, yes and no. It was not we're not talking about like high sided top secret or secret stuff, but it was not a bookstore in the traditional sense that you would think of like a Barnes Noble. Uh, and Noble. They didn't get walk in traffic. They didn't have books on shelves. What they were doing was uh, a perfect example is if you are uh, a, you know a student at Annapolis or, the, or any of the war colleges when you attend those universities or those those colleges, uh, the governor buys your books. So my parents, our company, would actually fill the contract to supply uh, the universities, State Department, libraries, Air Force libraries, uh, with actual books. So it was a, it was purely at this point responding to government contracts. And it was not a bookstore where you'd ever get foot traffic. So like okay. having someone walk into the office on an app of itself was kind of weird. Okay. This guy walked in and um but again, but they were dealing with you know the military, and they get you know all sorts of radar reports and things, targeting maps and stuff. Um, so they the guy walks in, and he just like there's a list of books, and he says he's from the United Nations. He shows my dad a card that says Colonel Alex Tomikin, Soviet mission to the UN, and then takes the card back and you know says so he works on nuclear disarmament. And my dad made some jokes to him about how business going, said it's always busy. And uh, my my dad's like, should we ship the books? So and the guy's like, no, um, I'll pick him up and worry about it. And with that, he just leaves. And my dad's like, oh, this is this is great. I just got a contract for the for the United Nations, and I didn't have to do anything. And he goes back to work, so doesn't take anything about it. And like literally, Emily, fifteen minutes later, um, two more men walk in. Uh, they identify themselves as FBI special agents, and um, they say the man who was just here was a Soviet intelligence officer, and they want to know what he what he wanted. And my dad was like, I just wanna buy some books, like you can not get anything for like, you know, this, like this is nothing nefarious. So he gives the FBI a list of books uh, of you know, books on titles like weapons control and nuclear disarmament and um he's like, well, mm-hmm. What do you want me to do? And like, Well, get him this book. He's like, Okay and then one is like, Well, if he gets back in touch with you, we'll be in touch and they left and thank him for his cooperation. And unbelievably that started a relationship that lasted 1999, so I got involved in 2005. So this was a long term thing. And, and oh, by the way, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was only a year where the KGB, this guy was a KGB officer, stopped coming to my parents' office and instead the GRU mm-hmm. replaced the KGB. So there was no change. It was just, they were looking for these same exact stuff, same relationships, same people, same you know, Russian war footing towards the United States, even though the Cold War had ended. And I think just you know, that's something idea. that has reached exactly right so
2: what's interesting i love that the fbi was surveilling the russian and that's how they knew and that that russian well what's interesting is that the russian had to have had really poor tradecraft that he basically this whole time he's leading the fbi there and as you know in a Somebody in the CI, whenever you go to any of these kinds of meetings or a potential, somebody could be a potential source. The first thing you do is you run a surveillance detection route and you're not running it to outrun surveillance. You're doing it because you want to see if you have surveillance. And if you do, you just abort your mission. You don't try to, you know, as they see in the movies, like outrun them or anything like that. You're literally just seeing if you're clean and if you're clean, you go to your meeting. But if you have surveillance, you skip it. And so, sensibly, this wasn't the best case officer because he literally let the FBI to your folks.
0: That's right. And the funny thing about him is he probably ended up becoming a general or, you know, <laughs> commanding some. And so now I, I just often wonder, like, what happens then when he reads about this, exactly what you just said, like how he ended up allowing uh, a multi-decade FBI operation to run against the Soviets and the Russians. It, it can't be a great resume builder now. Hopefully he's your Um <laughs> But you're right. Like, and and this is a funny thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that something so innocuous as as that, like, look at the ramifications it can have. Literally, right? I mean, yeah. You know, that's the other thing that you learn about this is that there's the details and the small things. You know, and the small things are the things that can oftentimes um, make an entire operation come undone.
2: So they, so then, cut to you. So okay. How did it happen for you? Now that we know that your parents, your parents so had story. The first
0: time I. Yes. Yeah. So for me, I, you know, I, again, as, an, as growing up as the sort immigrants, I was always like, Hey, how do I, uh, how, what's my identity? Um, am I, am I my French? I'm am American. What does that mean? And, you know, I always felt this need to be as over American, like really. And I think in the, in the age of Trump, I think a lot of people can understand what that, what that means even more so now. Um, But I really felt this need to sort of say, I'm American, um, and that's what I want to identify with. And, you know, for me, there was no, nothing more American than joining the military. Um, And I dabbled with it and ended up going to, ended up in computer science in college. But after September 11th, you know, as a New Yorker, as someone who's this sort of weird, eclectic combination of ethnic, ethnicities and cultures and races and, you know, um besides the obvious attack on our homeland, you know, the attack in New York and this place that was accepting of diversity, um, it really affected me and it sort of became like I looked at my own life as, you know, when I was a parent, everyone saying before kids and everything after kids, but certainly in a lot of ways, uh, everything before September eleventh and everything afterwards. Absolutely. And I thought I would join the military and I applied on the way, and like it is with a lot of these things, even though I did a good showing I, I didn't get in. And um become an intelligence officer, and I was sort of told, hey, if you really want to do this, don't give up. Apply again, just show some growth. And I really, honest to God, canceled this idea that if I applied again, perhaps if I helped the FBI, I had this long relationship with my parents, to their business, and, and the Russians. But maybe if I helped the FBI with the Russians, no shit that I, they would write me a lot of recommendations <laughs> for my subsequent application. Stranger so that, things have happened. So honestly... That's what I approached the FBI. I said, "Hey, you guys, can help me with the Russians." when you write me a letter of recommendation. They looked at they looked at me like, I, I mean, you've been on the other side of, the, of that conversation. Can you imagine? I mean, it, I, imagine these are people dealing. You know, they're asking for like, "Hey, I've never paid my taxes, or like, I, you know, I've been transporting livestock across state lines illegally. I totally imagine what they're asking for help with, and it's probably not a letter of recommendation to you know, in the military. So, but there we are.
2: So did, who, so this guy, how did this guy, he found you, his name Oleg? Yeah. He, I feel that's like right. we're talking the Americans right now. Like all these names sound like we're, Kerry Russell's going to be starring in your movie. <laughs> so he approached you, he, had he been going to the bookstore already?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so. that that's a great thing. So the Russians, um, you know, they've been coming to my parents' office for since 1989 like, and but they're diplomats right so they're yeah. they're they're intelligence officers they're, they were all military officers and they were all holding official posts at at the soviet and the russian missions to the united nations so they're all listed in fact oleg's name appears if you look at the u.n blue book you can see him they all sat on the front as a military document. So I, I say this because they all had diplomatic immunity yeah. but then they also they stayed in the united states for two or three years so every two or three years one would come in and that new one would make contact with my parents. Um, So he's been coming to the office uh, for a little bit of time. Um, Oleg actually, unlike his predecessors, like the other guys were cult- cultured and, you know, sort of suave and well-spoken and they spoke English very well. We talked about the Americans. first time I met Oleg, I saw this guy in his, like, really cheap suit with his, like, weird, uneven mustache that, like, you know, got soup stuck in it. And, like... He He's, just looked like,
2: he sounds hot. I don't know,
0: used, yeah, used shoe salesman maybe, yeah. you know, like, like if you need to buy uneven shoes, I don't know, like, he, see, that's what he looked like, but there was a, he also like walked, ran on straight, and I remember watching him walk up a hill, and it was just like, he flew up that hill, but even though the clothes were rough and he was unassuming, um, you got the sense that this was someone who was you know, a, a no, no joke kind of guy. Um, so yeah, so he came uh, to my parents' office one day to pick up books, and my dad introduced us. And he looked like, who the fuck is this guy? And so you know, and I was like, no, no, maybe if I crack a, joke, you know, I like to crack jokes, so like maybe I crack a joke to Oleg, um He'll you know he'll lighten up. And so I'm looking at him, and I go, hey Oleg, can I tell you know, I, I can tell you a joke? And he's like, okay. And I said, you know, there's a there's two old men standing online line in, in Red Square. This is right after Glasgow. And they're standing in line in Red Square for their daily serving of guru or abortion. And they're like, I don't understand. We're supposed to, shit's supposed to be better. Like, why are we standing online? line? And one of them goes, you know what? This is bullshit. Hold my spot online, line. I'm going to go shoot Gorbachev. And he goes, and then a few hours later, he comes back. And he goes, what happened? Did you shoot Gorbachev? And he goes, no, there was a line for that, too. <laughs> And I, like, like, that's the punchline, right? And like, you know, normally people chuckle. I look at Oleg and his eyes, like Emily, they got like as big as dinner plates. And he goes, oh, I don't, know anything about I don't know anything about that. Because he probably thought that I was trying to get him to kill the Russian government. And I, if I, if I recorded him saying something like, oh yeah, Gorbachev's an asshole. Like Naveed, that is something that you could be know used it. against them, right?
2: But Navid, you have to know your audience when you make a joke. <laughs> I mean seriously, this is the first role of like joke club. You gotta know your audience. This is killing me. You literally I was like you should be killing with this audience, but you really like almost killed with this audience.
0: Yeah, Yeah, right, exactly. I literally almost got him killed.
2: You literally oh, that's so sad. I'm sorry. Right. I know. Oh you're So probably
0: it's
2: it's so probably if you
0: go Yeah, so this is it. So if you go to like improv, like courses or you go to the farm with the CIA, it's probably the first thing they say is you no know, your audience you probably don't open with this joke around Russian spy
2: You you pretty That's much probably. don't open with a Gorbachev joke. Yeah. It's probably not your best thing. Maybe a little maybe a little <laughs> crowd work in the beginning, like, hey, how many of y'all are from You don't go straight for the
0: Gorbachev? You never do that. Right. Yeah, you No one ever goes full Gorbachev. You no, know. One. you, no. Gotta you gotta work never up go full Gorbachev.
2: You gotta work up. You have to earn that joke.
0: That's
2: so, right. so, he doesn't <laughs> laugh. He thinks your joke sucks, but
0: Yes. but something curious happened. He left, and you know the Russians would come back. Emily, the whole thing is like you said was you know the pre-plans they had to do to make sure there's counter for make sure they're not being followed. Um, it would take months between meetings, sometimes half a year. <clears throat> something curious happened. He came back a few weeks later, and it was clear he wanted to start a relationship and that became the basis to to really get things going. I had I realized that, you know, it, like you're talking about know your audience, I realized that I I had an audience. I had access. And now the question is how do you connect? How do you build that relationship? And the Russians weren't interested in me driving the ship. They wanted them this had to be about um them controlling it, not but me. If me controlling it, they'd be done. Well, that's yep.
2: that's very typical in in espionage. Whoever is recruiting or handling, that's how you establish just the hierarchy in a relationship. You always want to have control. And so I'm I'm assuming, and you can you can confirm, I'm assuming that he was the one who in the beginning would always set the meetings and say, This is where we're gonna meet, this is the time, this is the Absolutely. location. Because they always want to know that they know exactly where everything is, you have the control and you always You always have the upper hand. And that way he's also training, quote unquote, training you, although you were obviously a double agent, but he's training in his mind the agent to respond to commands, to respond to tasking, and to to feel like he's an employee.
0: That's right, And and that's why, you know, it's funny jumping ahead to to Trump and, and like, when I say collusion, and, and you'll appreciate this, but collusion to me is, as always, in the way that it was, defined um, equals parity. And it's exactly as you said, there is never parity to the case officer yeah. and his or her asset. It's always meant to be hierarchy. And, you know, like, everything whether, and it wasn't just the Russians. the FBI were the same way. I'd write the yep. FBI case officers too. Um, everything was about leverage. Like, even whoever got up from the, the table first, like, everything was always about um, you know, how do you uh, push through um, and, and who has the upper hand? And like the slightest thing could be about leverage. And, and you're right, like from shooting the meetings to even stupid stuff that How might did, seem irrelevant.
2: What did they want you to report on? Because before your parents were obviously giving over materials. like What did well, they think that you had access to that maybe your parents didn't?
0: Because, so uh, to be perfectly straight, I think what people, are, people are, uh, should understand is that the Russians here they weren't about just stealing or collecting intelligence. They were about recruiting assets. And this, you know, at this point, they'd been coming to my parents' office since, since 1989. They knew I was applying for the military. Um, but yeah. even before they knew that, they just wanted to recruit a spy. And this was yeah. not about me going in and stealing a particular thing for them, and then I was done. This was like, we get someone who's, you know, I was in, in my late 20s at the time, we get someone relatively young, they have a whole career. We can manipulate that career. We can get them to go where we want. This could be decades of someone being in sensitive areas that can collect intelligence for us. Who knows what they're going to have access on? Is, so really, their focus yeah. was recruiting me.
2: Well, what's not interesting... Not
0: I had at the moment.
2: What I love that you explained is that I think in the movies, when we watch espionage, everything happens you know within two hours, and you're like, oh, they just recruited someone. This is fantastic. <laughs> and the show's over. But really, when you recruit an asset, and especially... You can this really exemplifies it. They're playing the long game. They're thinking this guy isn't even in the military, but he will be. If we start him now, they're really thinking ahead. And I think we've seen that also when all the Russians like five or six years ago, the Anna Chap when Anna Chapman and all those folks That's got got wound up, they had truly played the long game. A lot of them had been here for 10, 12 years, even longer. That's right. And they were truly embedded in because the Soviets Got it. They got that they had to. They had to be patient, and we're. I think just as a by our nature, we're impatient, and I think it really speaks to what they were thinking.
0: That's right. That's right. And I think that it's really hard for Americans to understand uh, this. That, that you know, um, you know, the Russians like they're collecting. They like to collect people. Yeah. I think mean, that's the way they look at this. They don't. They don't have. Ne- they don't have a need for you today, but they might have a need for you tomorrow, or a week, or a month, or a year down the line. So why not build a network of people that we can have, for, that we know are trusted? So you know, it took them two years to even get to the point where they were telling me what intelligence they wanted me to collect. I mean, this was, you know, this was a uh, a, a very slow dance, and it was two years of essentially um, the Russians assessing me. And I can tell you a little aside, getting back to Trump land, you know, um, when you look at Carter Page, and, and I'll, I'll say this now, uh, I believe the Russians tried to recruit Carter Page, and we've seen the transcripts from the, the first trial in 2015 where the Russians are, they, the FBI released transcripts of the Russians talking about Page, and they're basically saying, "Guy's fucking nuts. Um, I think that that's, a, a, believe it or not, there's a standard here, and if you're nuts, and if you're someone who's not manageable, you may not be worth recruiting. Even if you do have access to graded information, There's like a risk-reward, right? There's got to be an ROI. Is there, and uh, I think that Carter Page I'm sorry.
2: I should say what you were saying is, is really accurate. First of all, if they had, if they tried to recruit Carter Page, they deserved Carter Page because he's just a nut. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can have him, but it, that's true. It's one of the process when you're in just to give people some insight into, you know, recruiting when, when somebody, when a case officer ops officer is recruiting somebody, it is about making sure they can take direction and you'll hear okay. people and in the cia we don't do honey pots and you'll hear it with the russians oh yeah use sex for sex for leverage and the reason that we don't do that is because you lose control and ultimately it's all about control always knowing that you okay. have that control over your asset and when sex gets involved or any of that it ends up muddying the water so you don't have that and so it's it's right. truly in with carter i you can get it if I know you wrote you wrote a piece about it like a year ago in Newsweek, so I encourage people to also read that too because it's an interesting perspective. I know that you you've shared that and some it's it kind of let the lit the Twitterverse on fire because some people agreed, some people didn't agree, and it was a healthy debate about it. But it really does point out the whole issue of control. So at this point, you're also so you're you're meeting with the Russians, and now you're also meeting with the FBI to tell them what the Russians were asking about. So you're getting yeah. it from both sides. You're seeing how the Russians operate and you're seeing how the FBI operates. Are you, are they gotcha. training you to do, you know, surveillance detection or are you just kind of just doing whatever is being told? Like, are you getting some of that training
0: too? Yeah. I mean, they sent me to a school for, t- no, they did nothing. I was completely flying by the speed of my hand. There was, <laughs> there was no training. The FBI was just, I would just, the best way I can tell what the FBI trained me is I'd be like, hey, this old I haven't gotten. They'd be like, well, what do you think? I'm like, no, I, I don't want to think about this. I want to know. Like, can you just tell me? I'm like, well, well if, you, if you're a Russian, I'm like, Thanks, don't play the bullshit with me. Like, just tell me if it got. Like, beat um,
2: twice I don't think they, If it's a yes,
0: <laughs> right? They're like, what if we play three times? Sons of bitches. Um bitches. You know, this really was Emily um, a unique operation. I understood this much later, in that like there was some guidance, but the FBI only like sort of command to me was there's three of them. One is um, do this as if you were a real spy. The second one is under no circumstances was I able to drink with the Russians. And third, the only thing they couldn't help me with was my taxes, the FBI. Uh, I don't really know what that means, but, um, <laughs> but that's the that's the three pieces of guidance I had. So, you know, so I have to sort of figure out what it means to be a spy and like what how does this buy ask? And like, why well, do they do this stuff? And how you're talking you? about honeypots. Like that's a bit, you know, how do you figure out what's your motivation?
2: And that's ultimately with espionage when you're recruiting somebody. And I'm sure the Russians were doing that with you as well, or trying to gain, gain yep. it a little bit going, okay, what you do is you try to spot somebody's vulnerabilities and whatever that vulnerability is, you then exploit it. And that's how you end up. It helps with the recruitment. You know, maybe if it was you and I was trying to recruit you and be like, Naveed needs money for school. Like this is his motivation. And then I can appease to that saying, Hey, you know, you've got some information that's really of value. I'd love to pay you for it and just, and you know, you can help out for school. And then that's how you start creating that relationship. And then you add what happened with you is they end up adding more layers to it. Like, Hey, now we're going to meet at this X spot on this X day. And they're doing that subliminal training of it as well. How did it all end for you? How did it, what was the last like, straw where you're like, okay, this is my last meeting with Oleg?
0: So, yeah. Hey, so, exactly the same. Um, you know, uh, just one step before I get that. Like It was about creating a persona for me. So I found this great acronym that he's a advanced, uh, called MICE: Money, Ideology, Forge, yep. and Ego. And essentially, you know, as you know, those are the four pillars of motivation yep. for people to do this. And for me, I created a fictitious sort of persona with Oleg where I was like, hey, I'm really smart. I'm smart, in the FBI they can't catch me, and I just want to shit out about. I don't care about ideology. and you know he wasn't going to coerce me and it was Oleg it wasn't like you know wasn't like uh, I, sex was not a sex was not something that we were we we're talking about, neither was coercion like it was it was really although that men's men's warehouse jacket that he wore a lot, you know it did it did at a certain point look at uh, how much like, money did you get
2: um, ostensibly? how much did you get?
0: Over the course of three years, it's a little more than a hundred thousand so dollars. But Remember the three the three things that I told you about that the FBI warned me. Um, mm-hmm. We were like, so I get the money from the Russians in cash. I give it to the FBI. The FBI a few days later would give me the same amount of money in cash back. Of course, I'm signing for it, of and course. I'm happy to report. I'm happy to report two things: one that we were fully cost recoverable, and that, and secondly that we, <laughs> the Russians were paying us to run an operation, a successful operation against them. So I, I'm pretty proud of that second part. Um, That's But hilarious. because it was cash, right? It, because it was cash in the FBI, I reported on my taxes as consultant because I was like, there's no way that I'm taking money from the FBI and, like, not reporting that. So in the end, you know, you think about how much money it is over the course of three years. So not like I'm not sneezing at it, but there's a lot of work and a lot of risk and, you know um, – yeah, it was there was definitely that part of it. I, and to be honest with you, I would have done this for free the the excitement of doing it was, was pretty uh pretty gratified. Did, um,
2: you, I have a question. When the Russians paid you, did you have to sign anything for the Russians?
0: <laughs> That's a great question. So I'm sorry,
2: Navid. Of course it's a great you question. You are smart.
0: It's almost like you're leading me you to know, like, yeah. Um so you know, the persona, Emily, like you know, I have to be the disguise officer. You can you can disguise how you look and maybe how you even sound, but like a lot of your personality traits. And exactly so, they're looking for motivation. Like why does he want why does this kid want to spy for us? Why do he want to help us? And so creating this persona like this young, brash, arrogant, money hungry kid was what I did to meet their profile. And I did it by watching movies. Michael Mann and like I love spy game with Robert Redford and, and nice. Brad Pitt. And I would miss the dialogue. So Asked about selling receipts, and the Russians were so goddamn cheap. Like every time we'd agree to price, they would always try kind to of underpay me. And I'd just, like, no, you take the promise. It. So, money was always a big thing, they always wanted to take, wanted to give me less than they promised for well, I because everything's about leverage. And for me, you know, I was the motivation for me, sitting with the Russians, Emily, remember, was about getting that letter of recommendation for the Navy, not about actually getting money from the Russians. So I had to create the whole other like motivation. <laughs> so that the Russians saw that. Like, I wasn't going to go to Oleg and be like, I need five more meetings with you. I need like, five more meetings. I finally get my letter of recommendation. <laughs> like, I mean, I have to find some other reason, Right. So I did this whole thing. I was watching movies and, um, I'd list dialogue. And there was one point where Oleg was sitting with me at Vinny's Clam Shack. They had the worst case in the restaurant. Buddy.
1: Oh, Jesus.
0: Um, in, in, in Long Island, New York. And, uh, he goes, he gives me, he reaches into his jacket and you know, a big white envelope of cash, and he gives it to me. He goes, uh, Would you mind sending me, signing this, this receipt?
1: Huh.
0: And I look at the receipt and I look at him, and there's a line. There's a scene from Miami Vice um, where the two detectives go down to Haiti and they meet with a drug lord. And the drug like, guy is like, Hey, how do I know you're not cops? And of course, they're both cops. But their response is to say, How do you know we're not cops? How do you know you, how do we know you're not a cop of the FBI? So I say to Oleg, Are you fucking kidding me? How do I know you're not a cop? How do I know you're not the FBI? How do I know you're not, you know, what are you? How do I know you are who you say you are? And he looks at me like completely shocked. And they go, Show me your fucking ID. Show me your goddamn wallet. And he's like, huh. and he takes all the wallets, like, He's like opening all these pictures and he you his UN ID and I'm like, Okay, okay. And he takes and they take the receipt back, and it never ask me to sign a receipt ever again. Do you know, um, and, but so do I, you know
2: why they ask you to do the receipt?
0: Of course, they're going to use it as like, you know, I blackmail probably. No, 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 I,
2: no, 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 and I mean this is a trick question. Um, no. In the CIA, I'm assuming it's similar because we have very similar tradecraft. One of the reasons you do it is to make it more established as a business relationship. So you signing your name, first at the CIA, so we have proof that ostensibly you have proof that you've paid an asset and asset has paid you. I mean, you could obviously forge a name, which I don't recommend anybody do, but it's another way of solidifying a business relationship because especially in the U S when you're working with an asset, you always want to make sure that that line is super, super clear, especially when you talk like honey pots or you're recruiting someone who's of the opposite sex. It's another way of solidifying that. So there's absolutely no confusion whatsoever.
0: I also think that with with the Russians, you're right. It wouldn't surprise me if these guys are skimming a little off the top of themselves. Absolutely. So I, think, I think part of it is also to to you know validate his superiors that he was in fact giving me the whole the whole motherload of cash. But nonetheless, Emily, you know, there's two things. One, it was like where else can you go tell a Russian spy to fuck himself, um, and you know still so get paid. And, like, that's the right thing to do. Um, and I never have to have asked to be found. I was never asked to find a scene
2: What I think is interesting, so after, because this all happens, and I don't expect that you'll be traveling to Moscow anytime soon. <laughs>
1: um, no. Did no. you
2: Did you ever imagine, because you look at where we are now, that that experience for you and that insight would have such a strong, like, strong resonance to what's going on now? Is it? Is it just kind of, weird and odd for you it's to me it would just be very
0: surreal you know it, it is i mean i remember when we i wrote the book in 2013 we started doing this it came out in 2015 um and i remember sitting in this meeting with um you know we eventually sold it to the Fox of the movie and I, I remember sitting in this room with all these people i had never done any of this stuff it was all brand new world to me and they're like this is pre-trump it's 2014 now we're talking about the good like, days. don't worry don't worry. Like in Hollywood, there are two consistent bad guys: Nazis and the and the Russians. And, <laughs> and then, look what happens in twenty sixteen. I'll never forget that conversation. So, on one hand, as look, of course, as an American, I'm incredibly disturbed. As a capitalist, yeah, it's been okay to me, right? Like it's.
2: <laughs> it's like when I was talking to the guys who created the Americans. It, he's like, you know, we were talking. I said, "Can you imagine?" He goes, "Yeah." People ask all the time, but then he's like. It doesn't hurt our show that this is happening because when he they, right. they first pitched it, people were like, "That's fucking crazy." Russians wouldn't live here undercover as Americans, and all of a sudden, it's Anna Chapman. It's all those people. That's right. And then you have now you have the you know Maria Butina or Butina, however you want to say it. So it's it's interesting that it's it's very much repeating itself, and it doesn't go away.
1: That's right. Do you that's think? Right. And
2: it, do you think that we're paying? Right. And it's interesting, like how. I'm trying, how does it? For me, I feel like the threat is so real and it's so dire from the Russians, and I get a little bit. Fr- I mean, I am incredibly frustrated at the administration for really believingly ignoring it. Ostensibly, I think just because it it behooves them, and it just you know it it bolsters their you know the administration. What do you think? Having dealt with the Russians,
0: yeah, I, I'm. I'm. You know, look. 2005 to 2009, I was doing this. Already, w- Russia was deprioritized. I was working with FBI agents that like hand me down cars. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they would they would complain when the NYPD, which you know, there's a snowstorm, they, were they to shut down the office, and they're like, you know, now the Russians know that we're not coming into work and declare this, you know declare that not essential personnel, but like you know, it, already like there was that pre-Trump. Um, even in obama like no one thought about the russians nope. and i saw it like from the russian standpoint what americans don't understand is we might have thought that the cold war was over and that russia was no longer a threat they
1: don't think so
0: russia right right russia thought america believed and certainly acted like america was their number one threat and so what they're doing is they're they're putting more and more effort into this so looking for more and more ways to be aggressive they're looking for what the line is that they can push right i mean when it comes to intelligence again as you know in cia you know if you collect intelligence it has it only has value for the large part if the other side doesn't know that you have it right so they're doing stuff they're looking for that line but they're not looking to make this stuff public i don't think uh, americans appreciate how much effort the russians expend in other countries frankly but the russians specifically spend in running operations here in the united states even 2016 like you know even if early clinton won russia would still remain a top threat to this country and you know of course donald trump is going to minimize this because of what it says about him but we're also in this position where we have a serious threat and there are serious events that happen i mean no one's going to doubt that the russians were involved in meddling in 2016 and probably a lot more than just modeling
2: well the, one person and, will doubt it but
0: you know it's true. right one but you know, I was publicly i'm sure he knows that he knows he doesn't want to admit it
2: well and it's also but, I, like you know oh sorry i was gonna say um no no it's,
0: it's,
2: it, this is the only time when you work in the intel when you work intelligence there's you know 16 17 different intelligence agencies now i always lose track yeah we never agree. It's like bad siblings. Everyone disagrees. Everyone's trying to, you know, one-up each other. It's the only time I remember that everybody agreed. Everyone said, it's the Russians. This is what they're doing. The threat is real. It is dire. And it will continue unless we do something. And everyone's like, it's scary. We need to do something. And Trump's like, eh, eh, it's okay. And it's, to me, that was, that should have been the wake-up call. Of course it wasn't. Who do you, when you look at 2020 down the road, who do you think is best fitted to do this? Who do you think has been impressive to you from maybe cybersecurity well, or from their uh, how they view this threat? I mean, I think they all do, but who are you excited about that you think could really so about this? I,
0: I'm biased. I'm biased. I have a special allegiance to Eric Swalwell, uh, That's Eric, great. and I, I've known Eric. He's a, he's a great, great, great dude. Just a, a real down to earth um, person, but also just someone who I think we talk about intelligence next. You know, really. There's a partisanship, and of course, we're all partisans, right? I mean, we're all disturbed with mean, every day, every hour with what Donald Trump is doing. But there's another part of this, which is like you know, we're supposed to, as a country rise above things like national things like national security. Um, Eric, uh, I first met Congressman Swalwell when he invited me a couple of years ago to come down and, and actually present a brief to the House Intel Committee. Uh, I was I, so I came down. I, I met you know Jackie Fields and Adam Schiff and. That's yeah, I had a really good conversation with them. And, you know, there was talking about intelligence and talking about the threat, and it was just good. And the only people that weren't there were the Republicans. Um, it was right before Nunez. They never, none of them showed up. They were invited. And, you know, again, it just shows the nature of the partisanship. And I was brought down not to talk about Trump. I don't know anything firsthand about, you know, Russia and Trump. Um, you know, again, I was 2005, 2009. And, you know, it's just the state of affairs. I think it tells you that like, we won't even talk about this threat in an objective way. So I, I felt i owe all debt uh, a gratitude and, and allegiance because of what Eric did here. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy that he's running. I think he's bringing some great ideas. And, and I think that there's a lot of people running now. And I'll, I'll say this, that, you know, I, I, it's frustrating when we look at the Democratic Party, that there's just not a lot of movement. You know? we need turnover, we need new ideas, we need new people coming in. And, you know, it's no secret. You come into Congress or the Senate and you're there for 10, 20, 40 years. And it's just, at a certain point, it's like, how do we get new ideas? How do we get people, elected officials that connect to the, the population, the changing demographics? And um, I think that for a lot of Democrats, can't really, you know, running for office is, is a way to sort of highlight who they are. Um, and you know it's also a way to start getting some real ideas out there um, but we, we need that I mean everything that Trump is we should be reacting by proposing real progressive ideas and, and you know I, mean, I, I just hope that the whoever comes out of this is like gonna really be able nice people and not just some really warm sort of milk toast um,
2: I agree idea. with you about it's funny I was yesterday I was, walking around the Russell Rotunda, and you know seeing all the different congressmen, and it was just interesting, because I thought some of them had been there for a while, and I was curious if they were, some of them, when I won't name names, I felt had gotten a little complacent, and didn't really reflect the constituents anymore. And I think it's easy to get into that. So I was excited for the last election. We saw this new blood coming in. And one of the reasons I like swallows is I feel like he speaks in a very contemporary way that really reflects sort of this new wave of you know, yeah. progressive thought, but not in a way that I think feels threatening. I mean, I like that one of his core tenets that he's leading with is gun control and he's making yeah. it really a pillar of what he's talking about and I think it's it's bold it's needed I don't know if it's enough but I'm excited about it and also he's very real there's something about him I've had a couple I think I told you this story I it was very funny he was complaining about Someone, two people had mocked his hair. Someone said they liked it, some they didn't. So he tweeted something very funny, like, oh, I I can't win. You know, some people like my hair, some people don't like my hair. And I tweeted something snarky. I'm like, hey, Eric, welcome to being a woman. This happens all the fucking time. I said a little bit nicer. But he DM'd me... And I mean, then I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't have been like that sassy. And then he DM me. He's like, hey, I'm so sorry that you had to go through this. I was like, hey, it's okay. I'm on social media. I'm very callous to all this. And, you know, I once wore an eye patch. So I'm used to I'm used to any harassment. And it's I mean, once you do, once you wear an eye patch, really, all bets are off. He then writes back, I once wore an eye patch. And I said, I literally that's all it took. I was like, okay, you have my vote. That's it. You wore an eye patch. I wore. You may same same. I literally, and it's funny because I'll tell people they're like, "Why do you like Eric?" I'm like, "Cause he once wore an eye patch." And like anything else, I'm like, "I don't care about his policy." Okay, he wore an eye patch, and so, it really it delighted me that he was so real that he said, "Yeah, no, I I yeah. totally get it." And I was like, "Okay," it it just to me, you know, I, he's very. It was yeah, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful
0: moment. He's, he's I, I've met a few of the candidates, and, and nothing against them or anything, They're all I think they're all decent people. Eric is a is a very genuine yeah. <laughs> he's just very personable, very like and, you know, I mean, like I'm waiting for Cory Booker to wear two eye patches now. Just I would love I oh my God,
2: I'd vote for him. He's like, I literally can't see <laughs> anymore. I'm wearing two eye patches gonna hurt the one that you So what really if you
0: two eyes one eye patch on top of the other. I mean, you never know. Oh. It could be
2: and it wasn't, so it a, and uh, by the way, it wasn't at a time where it was like cool to wear one where, you know, people kept asking me, Did you bedazzle it? I said, No, I was so young and my parents were not into that. So they got me these like adhesive brown ones that was, it was horrible. There was nothing attractive about it. And then I had lazy on my other eyes. So then I had more eye. It was horrible. Uh, it was
0: nothing. Attractive. The only time it was cool to wear was like the 1500s if you're like on a sloop in the Caribbean. Exactly. But beyond that, I think. I think they those days of Wayne Emily, because that's why I.:
2: Yeah, it's, it's not something I would have put on my J Day profile. Let's just say that.
0: You're not not bringing it back.
2: You know, I'm going to be like single. I need someone single, funny, and someone who wears an eye patch because, you know, we would look really cute together. Uh, Yeah, no.
0: Never, ever. Someone who can respect my lack of depth perception.
2: (laughs) Someone who doesn't look for motor skills in their partner. If that's what you need, I'm your girl. I was also in a class, by the way, called Special Gym, which you would never call that in real life because I had no motor skills at the same time. And so, literally, I would just spend... It was like every Wednesday and Friday, they would take me out of math class, which is why I can't do math. And they'd make me throw balls against walls to improve my motor skills. And I would, you know, wrap like wham, like a big rubber ball against a wall. And then would just like hit me in the face. And I was like, I don't like this. It was like I was playing dodgeball with myself. It was horrible.
0: And leaving
2: apparently. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, I was back to you. What I talked about in the beginning. This is a horrible segue because I'm going to get like serious, and it's horrible. I went from literally hitting myself in the face with a ball to this. One of the things that I really adore about you, and I just admire, is that you you have a true commitment to social activism and to public service. And one of the things that's that you advocate about has nothing to do with the Russian stuff is just, you've been a very vocal, loud voice for sexual assault and rape victim advocate. You've advocated for survivors in such a big, bold, beautiful way. And I would love for you just give people a little background on why this is so, this resonates for you and truly. And I know we joke around all the time, like literally you can tell how we chat, like we always joke around, but I've, I've told you over and over again, it's, to me, this everything you've done for the government, everything you've done with Russia, it's amazing, and you've you've had such a good you know impact. You're, you're it's when you're the work that you're doing here and the voice that you're giving to survivors, that's that to me is like your ticket to heaven. It's like a thumbprint that you're leaving on the world. It's truly amazing.
0: That's very deep with you. You know to say that I really I will I'll be as excited really do appreciate that. Um, you know <clears throat> I, I think. The best way to put it is, um, I was just talking to a gentleman uh, earlier today, and, you know, I I think that this country with Trump, we've seen just how fractured it is. And I think that a lot of people, you know, if you're not a woman, if you're not a a person of color, um, if you're, and and no, nothing wrong with them, and, 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 but like, if you're a, a rich white man, you're living in a country where the system is designed to work for you. And what I found is that anyone else, you know, look. what I say is that we have to work twice as hard for half the respect. And it's just the the truth. And it's just, you know, um, having two kids, I I hope that at least they can get the three-quarters of the respect. I know it's never going to be one-to-one. It's just a long way to go. And when it comes to sexual assault, you know, what I found is it started with a very simple um, uh, activity. We're just trying to figure out, looking at a particular district, how many of the reported rates were tried by the county? And what we found is we couldn't, we could see the county numbers, but the county presumably includes, you know, other districts. So if there's 120 rates in this district and there's 80 that, provide, that are processed by the county, which show those 120 were processed, we couldn't answer that. And that became this exercise to look into, into this from an intelligence officer from a data standpoint. And we started to realize that, my God, there's just all these areas where, um, steps from reporting to taking the report to filing the report to signing it to the detective to investigating the rape tip for the prosecution to prosecutors deciding declining to charge or deciding to downgrade the charges to the conviction to the you know person being released. But there's all these bureaucratic steps, and what we found, Emily, that that really upset me, genuinely upset me, was that bureaucracy is is awful. Um, And in many cases, the survivors are being re-victimized in the fact that they were then expected to really act as almost project managers to make sure that their investigation, once they come forward, if they chose to come forward, was then pushed to that, you know, the rape picture uh, process, but the results were retained, that prosecutors didn't downgrade charges, that If they did, there was an explanation, uh, so on and so forth. And if you think about the crime that that, besides the psychological force, you know, for a lot of people who are uh, working or who don't have foreign means, that is a huge barrier for them to do that. And so they would report and then have to come in and testify and to push the detective to, to, you know, ask the crime lab. There's just so many cases where, uh, or instances where cases just drop because, um, of bureaucracy and so we wanted to address that by idea a procedural justice and really something I, I want to push forward on the national level now um, but this idea that you know bureaucracy can in many cases be an impediment and certainly if you're someone who's not of means who doesn't have the resources um, to sit on an investigation a lot of times justice is denied for no other reason than bureaucracy and lack of uh, of just commitment to, to resolve it. and it's frustrating it's just not the way the system is supposed to
2: work well it's interesting because I think people we all saw it, especially women I mean obviously it's not a great time for women for women right now with with this administration and we're you know pushing and trying and me too and all that but with when Kavanaugh was going through his hearings you know there yeah. was it, it was infuriating to me all these men who were saying well why didn't you report it earlier why didn't you do it earlier and people have no idea also no survivor has any responsibility to do anything. She doesn't have to do okay. it. If she owes nothing to anybody. She just needs to take care of herself. That's the only thing. And if she does the step forward, she can do it whenever the fuck she wants. And that always drove okay. me crazy because that was what they would always you know, go to. But I don't think... I think why I'm impressed that you're doing this is because you're pointing that out. You're pointing out these obstacles because it's not just so easy to go, Hey, yes, this happened to me. It isn't. Then they're out. Then it's a road to hell that a lot of these women have to go through in order to get justice in order to actually hold someone accountable for what they did. And besides going through that hell, they are getting re-victimized. If it goes to trial, then somebody is saying, we don't believe you. And for, Many, many, many survivors. That's the big thing. I won't be believed,
0: and exactly. and, it, and and you know what, Emily just to, just yeah. one thing to add on to that. Just even before it gets to trial, I mean, just to get I mean, there you go to any state out there and you look at the backlog of rape kits. I mean, you talk about the statute of limitations. In many cases, people are denied justice or even even a yeah. trial because the the rape kits are sitting. Uh, there was a case here in Seattle where. There was a, a 15 or 16 year old girl who was raped, assaulted, and the rape had sat on uh, in the lab for 20 years. And they finally processed it, and they it was a serial rapist. So they just arrested and, oh. and, and had been tried for other things, but not before he had, you know, added more victims. And so even before your trial, to be a woman and, and or to be be someone who has to now take on. That. You're a victim of something horrible, but you've got to push to make sure that like the lab is processing your rape tip, The detectives are following up with the lab. Like that's you know besides the psychological thing, you know if you're someone who is again you know an hourly worker, um, how do you take off from work to push people? It's just it's it's so unfair. It's just so patently unfair. Oh, so um, uh, people know.
2: don't think about that. People don't think about no. Uh, why don't they do it? Because oh yeah, they're supporting a family, and taking off all that it's, it's, time it's, means that they can't feed their children.
0: Yeah, or they can't work, and they, they have to work, them and them they'll lose table. their
2: job, and then they, they what? It's, it oh, What do they go
0: to their boss and say, uh, "Can I take a spo- day off so, Yeah, it it is. It, it is, and and what I feel though, Emily, is that um, you know, this is the time we talk about Eric and Eric and, and others. Like I think that this is a time to really push change and what i've seen uh is that we need to have a country where it doesn't and again it's not against um you know white men i don't want to single them out or say that they've done anything wrong but this is a system that is if you're not that if you're if you're part of the lgbtq if you're a child if you're poor if you're a woman if you're a minority you know this is not a country where a lot of the systems work for you you're uh, my goodness, we were just talking about, like, test prep, you know. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're uh, uh, come from a, you know, a family in poverty, and you're worried about making rent and putting food on the table, you may don't have, maybe don't have money to take, you know, test prep courses for the SAT. You, know, you have, you know, these very rich families who are paying to get into college. And are right, also disproportionate about, things. exactly. Yeah.
2: It's... And, and,
0: you know, this is a system that needs to change, and I know this maybe sounds a bit grandiose, but it's like, this is the time to do it. And I think, I hope that people realize that, you know, if this is going to be a country that truly is equitable, that we need to have systems that work for everyone, all Americans, right? And but, I said, maybe so it sounds plain, but like God not what it's supposed to be. And I
2: would love how you think. I it just, isn't. just am so jaded. I, I <laughs> I, I truly do hope you're right, and I try to re- retain some optimism. I, it's hard because I spend way too much time watching the news and on Twitter, and I get, you know, extremely depressed. But I hope that you're right, and I hope that this election, this new one, will will bring forward people who can start affecting that kind of change because I think we started to see it, you know, with health care and with, and with the LGBTQ community under Obama and just – we saw change really happening where people who were underrepresented were finally feeling represented. Were finally not feeling as marginalized as they were before. And we've gone, the pendulum has swung so far that I'm, I'm really, I, I hope that you're right. And I hope it hasn't swung so, so far that, you know, we're not going to see that kind of movement. Well, look,
0: there, I think there there are going to be people that are just never going to change. And, you know, we have to keep moving forward. It's just, uh, it's mm-hmm. just the way it's going to be. This country is changing mm-hmm. demographically. I mean, just the numbers are there. And, you know, we can't be... It's like, I feel like we're turning into Iraq where there's a majority, you know, set uh, Sunni and Shia and the, the minority overrules the majority and eventually you know, look what happened. That completely collapsed. We can't... You know, we have to have representation that is of, uh, of the demographic this country is and the ideas this country is. And it can't just be, you know, pro-life and no gun control and, you know, no ideas of equity. Things have got to change. So hopefully they will. And I, I think it's a, you know, I just hope people, the best thing you can do, people ask about stopping Russia and what can Mueller do, and I think the best thing they can do is, is, is vote. I vote. Be I, that's what like, I tell everybody. Go I out there and vote. vote.
2: I tell them, vote their ass off. I also tell my, all my nieces who are not who are still in junior high and high school, I'm like, run for the White House, make a run for the White House, and they are so annoyed with me. Yeah. They was like, take it down a <laughs> Emily. I'm like, I told you to run for the White House, so like, can you seriously? Why are you running already? Come on! I know they're so annoyed. My one niece ran was gonna. <laughs> she was one of her friends was gonna run for student council, and then there was somebody else that was running. I was like, you, you need to vote for your conscience and who like has your who really. Represent your interest. She's like, I'm in sixth grade. Can you just, I just want a longer lunch. Like, Could, can, but Tina said we get Coke, right? Yeah, longer lunch. <laughs> and it was funny because I think the person, oh, it was somebody named, this is totally an aside, somebody named Logan, and I was like, you know what? And just because it's a dude, you don't have to do that, just you don't know, have to do it and he shouldn't get all this power. <laughs> I start going on and on about how these men and it starts young in sixth grade and literally it's all through Instagram chat that I'm telling her this and I'm sure she's like, Oh my fucking God So I'm going off on Logan and he's doing this, he's doing that and finally she writes back, um
1: Logan's like, a
2: girl. Logan the girl. And I was yeah. like Well then I- <laughs> And I said, well, then I support her candidacy. And if she would like, I can write her a letter of recommendation. And please don't tell Logan. And please don't tell your parents that we had this Instagram chat. Do you know how to delete chat messages, don't you? She's like, yes, Aunt Emily. And she's like, you know, I delete all of your chats anyway because you curse a lot. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot I do that
0: a lot. Out. oh gosh uh, I, I listen can, can, can i leave you with one funny story yes, before we
2: before we depart uh,
0: yes yeah, it better so. be funnier
2: than Here's, your wait a minute is this funnier than that stupid joke you told the russians
0: no i'm not going for gorbachev I okay because uh, that
2: joke not so, a
0: good joke no it's not a good joke but you know yes so in, in, the, in the in the height of like when i was in msnbc i remember we were back in new york and I, I had two wonderful boys ten and, 10 and seven. And um, they share my sense of humor. Um, and I'm standing, <clears throat> I'm walking down Broadway. And like, you know, feel this guy, you're my name being called, and I turn around and this guy running up. And he goes, oh my God, I watch you on MSNBC all the time. I'm so honored to meet you. Oh. Um, you know, he's talking. He's really nice, right? sweet. And he wants to take like, a picture. of course. And, and I'm looking at my kids and I'm like, thinking, like hell, you know, I they drive a minivan, but you see what, <laughs> see what you know, to have. he's pretty cool, right? The man was very nice. And, and, uh, my my now ten year old looks at me, pops an eyebrow, and goes, "Oh look, you met your fan. And I was like, Stop. <laughs> "Well, well and the played, point being, son." Well played. The point being is that like you can never let your ego ever run run off you. Like it's really important to stay grounded with this stuff. And kids, children have a, Even have a way of making way sure yeah. that you yeah. stay
2: so <laughs> grounded. That's pretty amazing. Well, I want to. I have one quick question, then I'm going to end. Us. Yeah, please. So, if they made a, I'm just curious because people ask me this because I have an unusual backstory, and I know that you now also have a very unusual backstory. Who would you want to play you in the movie version of you know your life?
0: So I, I'm supposed to be sworn to secrecy se by a fox about this.
2: Okay. Um, I, nobody will hear
0: this, but it's okay. No, no, of course, no. This isn't going just me and you, right? Yes, it's you know, it. I, so uh, the joke, of course, is, like, I don't care unless the check clears. But it would be really great if it was, you know, someone who was a minority. Like, if they took the story. And, again, I have no control over this. They can rewrite it and, ho- you know, Hollywoodize it. Um, I met Cal Penn.
2: I love Cal yes, Penn.
0: Urban. He was great. And we had a nice conversation. I was like, you should totally play this. And I have a picture of him and I. And he's like, totally. I'm sure it'll never happen. But I I don't really care who it is. I just want it to be someone who at least is, you know, but on that's my That's not bars. my
2: question. My question is if you had a dream cast and you were like, this is who I want to play me. Like,
0: well, obviously Brad Pitt.
2: Okay, see, that's what I was looking for.
0: I just wanted to know, like... <laughs> I mean, do. because I then know. people be like, is that Brad Pitt or Naveed? I thought Naveed was... I thought Brad Pitt was so right. I didn't realize Naveed was playing with himself in this movie? Isn't that what people see?
2: That's what I was asking. It'll be in, like, an <laughs> Us Weekly, and they'll be, like, separated at birth, and there'll be pictures that's of both right. each other. <laughs>
0: If it's, the only way you can tell is one of them's wearing an iPad.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Too soon. Too soon with the iPad joke. Too soon. Um, I oh. wanna just thank you so much. I am we've talked about doing this and I was so excited to get to talk to you because like I said, you're my friend and it's it's always a delight and I want people to really hear your story because The service that your parents did for this country, they were immigrants and they continued to serve in such a really unique, beautiful way and worked with the FBI to give back to this country. And if you go to Naveed's Twitter page, which will give you his handle, you'll see a great letter that Representative Swalwell wrote thanking his parents for their service, which was to me just so special and that how you continue to serve as well in the military through your work with the FBI and you continue to be such a strong voice about democracy and what, and what the American dream can be. I appreciate that. And so it's really special. And so I was very excited. And also I think you're funny and you make me laugh. I appreciate that. So, you know, there's that too. And so I want everybody, you can, know, yes, continue. I was going to give a shout out. Can we
0: just end with like, yes. can we end with this? that In the in the famous words of Lynn Fisk I did it for the iPods.
2: I get it for the iPad. Oh, that's, can you please put that on your Twitter handle? I would be really excited. <laughs> or like a small tattoo on your lower back, you know, so it's classy. That would be great. There's nothing. I'll give gold. That would be super, super hot. Um, if you all like these kinds of conversations that you're hearing right now, you can go to deepstate uh, com and you can download all these amazing podcasts. Also, if you want to also get one of these podcasts, you, they come out free on iTunes on Fridays. So you could go there. And if you download it and you like it, rate it and review it. It's really exciting for us because then we can share this content with other people who may be interested in this kind of content. So please rate and review it. And if you don't like it, rate and review it and just lie and give us a great review. And you could follow all the happenings on this podcast on Deep State Radio. You can follow them on Twitter. Naveed, why don't you give out your handle as well?
0: Thank you. I'm, sorry. Uh, this has been great, Emily. I really, really appreciate it. This has been awesome.
2: It's fantastic. And you're at Naveed Jamali on Twitter, correct?
0: Yes, that's right. Naveed Jamali, you can follow me. That'd be great.
2: And you can also follow me at uh, CIA Spy Girl. I literally had to think about it for a second. I'm at CIA Spy Girl. I, I have know. the least subtle can Twitter it- handle ever. It's not like it's like subtle. It's at CIA Spy we get
0: uh, Can we get eye patch Spy Girl? Is that taken? Cause I'm it's just too taken.
2: soon. God damn it, Naveed. It's too soon. It's still a wound that I lick and, and I have shame, deep shame <laughs> about. I, it's funny. I'm like, you don't want to talk about something that will keep you grounded. Wearing an eye patch will keep you <laughs> fucking grounded. Anyway, I'm. <laughs> Thank you again so much. This thank was you. so much fun. And if you guys have questions about the podcast or any of the stories that we tell, please uh, tweet me, tweet Naveed, and we'd be happy to respond to. because I think these are kinds of the good conversations that we should be having and good dialogue and talking about ways to really you know move, move forward. And so thank you all. Thank you for checking us out and talk to you all next week. Bye.
1: Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network